0: Good morning, beloved. Welcome. Um, Here at nine o'clock this Lord's Day, let's look at uh, the Book of Ecclesiastes. That's where we are, chapter one. I'm going to read verses one through eleven. Words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full, to the place where the streams flow There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Uh, We've noted that Ecclesiastes um, is often referred to by many as a a rather depressing book. Um, Life Under the Sun, is the koaleth puts it, the preacher, that the one who speaks in the assembly, the one who speaks in the Ecclesiastes, from where we get Ecclesiastes, um, is Solomon. And, and he writes that life under the sun, life without a proper perspective of the one who dwells above the sun, the creator of all things, life is empty, life is but a vapor, and life is meaningless. So Solomon, you know, he, he surveys man's existence from, you know, an under the sun perspective, but that's the common attempt of secular man, is it not to observe life and its meaning, not knowing the one true God, um, you'll continue to scratch your head wondering what is this all about, looking at things and not seeing from the perspective of the one who, who rules over all things. An anonymous woman once said this. Courageous, that's how you see me. Successful, that's why you believe in me. Happy, that's what you expect from me. But emptiness, that's what's inside of me. End quote. And from the fall of Adam onward, man has tried, no doubt, to be happy, to be content, to find fulfillment um, without God, it's the account It's the attempt of countless people um, on any any given day from any generation. And Ecclesiastes will go on to prove uh, the absurdity of such an attempt. That's the point. That's the goal. And that's why we have to keep uh, um, Christ in our focus. As we, as we study through this. So in spite of all of man's achievements in this life, in spite of man's intelligence, um, in spite of all of their degrees and all of their attempts at being intellectual, unregenerate mankind in the sight of God are the ones who are the fools. And that, tr- that truth is hard for people to swallow whose focus is on their IQ that they could possibly be a fool. But one regenerate scholarly thinker, in other words, a believer, um, as regards that fact, writes this, and I quote, having lived in Durham, in Boston, in Cambridge, and Washington, D.C., I've watched people with privilege and power show both the strange blindness that can overcome people when they feel completely satisfied And the strange perceptiveness they simultaneously gain of the emptiness of what everyone else around them would die to have. I've observed people who've spent their entire lives getting into prestigious academic institutions and then build their worlds around the strangest and most obscure ideas. They remarkably and triumphantly became the world acclaimed masters of their field or fields. Meanwhile, every other area of their lives was a wreck, end quote. Empty, vain. So Solomon's thesis is that failure to find joy in anything apart from God, be it fame, wealth, knowledge, sexuality, food, drink, friendship, or even legacy, as we shall see, he's surveyed them all. Basically saying, what I have to say in my observations, I know what I'm talking about. I know. Jesus said this. What does it profit a man if he what? Gains the whole world and forfeits his life. Okay, now with that that introduction, I want to... Look briefly at Solomon. First, in 1 Kings chapter 3, we see and in are introduced to young Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Solomon has just become king. Your servant, we read, is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. Then it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to to discern what is right, Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. There's the king. Now, God wrote about kings that would come into Israel long before Solomon, and we read in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God's instruction as Israel's about ready to go into the promised land, his instructions regarding kings of which they will inquire. They will want a king for themselves as the nations around them. And the Lord said this, Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 only he must not acquire many horses for himself, this is the kings that they will have, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book. Now, listen to this. In a book, he shall write for himself a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it. He shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn the fear of the Lord, his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now look at 1 Kings 10. I don't have this down for you. You're going to have to turn there. 1 Kings 10, beginning in verse 24. Verse 23, it says, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrhs, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the, of the cephala. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Qe. And, and, and the king traders received them from QA at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's tradery, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the, daughters, uh, the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said of the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning these things, this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. So Solomon himself, the wisest man, for a season turned from the Lord. And then he tried many substitutions for satisfaction. And Ecclesiastes is a result of that. Now last time we looked at verses 1 and 2, is the book opens with an introduction of this, the author, The problem is stated in verse 2. Here's the theme stated. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything under the sun is but vapor. It is a breath, it is a mist, it's meaningless, it's empty. A little pessimistic. Now we're shown a series of experiments so as to to find fulfillment. This is one who's fallen away from the Lord. This is one who's attempting to find satisfaction while walking and talking under the sun. Trying and striving to get something out of life. Trying to find fulfillment in these experiments. And the experiments that he tries cover uh, the book from verse 3 to chapter 12, verse 12. Okay? Here then, verse 3. He gives an assessment of the yield... Of human life. Human endeavors under the sun. Verse 3. What does man gain? Okay, what's the yield? What's the profit? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So he says here that significance, meaning, and purpose cannot come from any earthly endeavor. That will be the end result. So he uses commercial language here. What gain? What gain does a man get? And he's referring to surplus. What's left over after all the expenses are paid? What's left over? That's the question. So the goal in business is to turn a profit. Business people, amen? Is to turn a profit. So the preacher asks, what's the return or the investment for hard work under the sun? Life under this S-U-N, what is the profit? And the idea is to... Is, is to uh, Gain profit, and this shows up repeatedly as we read through the book. So he asked his audience, his students, so as to draw them into the discussion. Obviously, obviously, the question is rhetorical. He surveyed the horizon, he's looked at it all, he's experienced it, he knows the answer. So he asked the question so as to make a point. For all man puts into this life, what's his yield? Isn't that what the world asks? What, what's it, what does this profit? The preacher's answer, this life doesn't pay dividends. That doesn't mean we're not supposed to work hard. Obviously, we have to understand the context. What's the profit living under the sun when you don't have a right perspective of the creator? What, 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 is, what do we gain from all this? It's just Toil. Toil under the sun. Notice verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Now normally we would say what? A generation comes and a generation goes. And he reverses it. He reverses the order, placing the emphasis on the replacement. The emphasis is on the replacement people as one generation replaces the one before it. So in spite of constant change, nothing changes. That's the toil under the sun. That's the expression. There's no profit. So in other words, he's describing this recurring problem. The problem of meaninglessness. The problem of meaningless under the sun, meaningless under the sun, it doesn't go away. That's what he's stressing. It, just, it never goes away. One generation comes. As one goes out, the problem never ceases. There's no profit with new people. This generation comes. It strives. It toils. It works. Puts forth effort. And it can provide no fresh formula to living under the sun. So when the next generation comes along and they start thinking about things, their answer is the same. SOS. Same old situation. Progress itself. We'll see here that progress does not supply a solution to the problem because the problem is within man's heart. Under the sun. And the problem outlasts every generation. You think about technology. Technology advances, governments advance throughout time, and the fundamental question of man under the sun remains the same: Why are we here? Where did we come from? What happens with when we die? Right. Basically, that's what a worldview is. Where do we come from? Why are we here? What happens when we die? Does my life have any value as I endure here and toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go. It's all toil. And though people change, or I should say, as, as people come, things change, but the people who bring forth change don't change. Amen? Living under the sun. So now he moves to this experiment with the elements, earth, wind, and fire. Great band. Great band. The elements. It's actually earth, wind, fire, and water. So li- listen here in verse 5. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and round goes the wind, and on its Circuits, the wind returns, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. So in Ecclesiastes, the sun rises, and literally what he says here, it rises and, and it pants to the place from where it arose. As though the sun is grasping for breath. That's the picture. The sun, it rises, it pants. It's a slow, endless circuit, from our perspective, across the sky. So it's the, 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 the daily journey of the sun from man's perspective on the earth, under the sun, he says, is mere toil. It's like the hamster on the wheel. It's this never-ending treadmill. It just goes and goes and pants. Quite different. Quite different perspective than a man of God, such as King David, okay, who, who, who described heaven as that which declares the glory of God. Right? Here's the difference. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, verse 4, in them he has set a tent for the sun. Now, notice the difference here, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Not panting. Running like a victor. Its rising is from the end of the heavens. Its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. So living life merely under the sun. You see the sun is rising and panting to its setting. And then the wind here also is seen as failing to achieve anything. So as the sun from the observation of one who lives without hope in the, in the one true God it simply moves from east, to west and it's just trapped in this constant cycle and now the wind he describes it as moving south to north turning and going round and round and it never ends even the wind from his perspective is caught in a rut following its you know, customary current Jesus talked about wind didn't he not as regards regeneration the fact that this dead soul comes to faith and trust in the one true God. A Pharisee, Nicodemus, inquired about that. Jesus said, Most surely I tell you, most surely I say to you, unless a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom. And Nic- Nicodemus, he responded, you know, uh, born again? How's, you know, how's a man to you know, enter his mother's womb a second time? Now, he wasn't ignorant. He knew what Jesus meant. He was saying that in order... To believe like this, that would be as miraculous as someone entering his mother's womb a second time. Jesus and, and he said, "How does this happen? How does this new, new birth happen?" And Jesus responded, saying, "The wind blows where it wishes. Right? You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit." As a Christian here this morning, that's the miracle. The Spirit of God from above gave you life. How did it happen? Well, you can look back and you can ponder and kind of put the pieces together. But as the wind blows this morning, then you see the trees move, and you may hear the sound of it, you don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it ends up. That's the miracle of salvation. Quite a different perspective of wind, Amen. So now the the preacher moves on to talk about the flow of water. Verse 7, we all know that the sea is not full because water evaporates. It rises, it brings clouds, clouds bring rain. The rain falls on the earth, it falls into the streams, the streams into rivers, rivers into the ocean and it's never full. But, But that's not really the point of Solomon here. So Solomon's likely thinking of the Dead Sea. Okay, which is 1,370 some feet before, below sea level. And it's landlocked, has no outlet. So here's Solomon. For generations, he knows that the Jordan and all the streams that flow into the Jordan flow into the sea that has no outlet, 1,300 and some feet below sea level, and it's never full. That's the picture. The water just continues to flow along with all the activities of the wind as well as the sun set on its endless course. In other words, he's saying, look, everything seems just to run in a rut. And man, if you don't have Christ, everything runs as though it's in a rut. Right? Right? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher, says the koaleth, says the man who speaks in the assembly, says the philosopher. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. How true is that? It's all true. But how vivid is that truth in our day, right? That the eye's not satisfied with seeing. The ear's not satisfied with hearing. So when he says all things here, verse 8, he's referring to the pre- that which he's previously described uh, regarding the cycles of nature. He contemplates. This is all fatigue. This is a tires- tiresome thing. And life lived apart from God is... Never ending. New sights, new sounds may entertain for a while, but they get old fast. Real fast. Do you remember how cool it was to have an 8-track back in the 70s? Remember? That? <laughs> and to have a, an 8-track player in your car. And then you could, it had what? Well, 8 tracks, and you just push a button and it jumps. You remember that? My dad had one. I thought it was the coolest thing. How many of you have an 8-track in your car today? This is especially true in the information age. You have iPhones and iPads and i-everything, iTunes, and they still do not satisfy fallen man's desires. They want more, so they strive to, f- to fulfill the emptiness that they feel. The eyes never satisfied. It will never be satisfied. What you hear is never satisfied. That's why preaching exposition from pulpits is boring to most people, so they go after teachers who tickle their what? Ears. And they're never satisfied because they don't have the Spirit of God. Therefore, to hear the Word of God bores them to death. Verse 9, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. There is a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It's been already in the ages before us, says Solomon. So the preacher here, he, he anticipates an objection. See, this is new. Because that's a radical claim that nothing is new. So, his answer is short. It's abrupt. He says, it's already been. Any questions? That's what he says, not me. Any questions? Says the coalesce, says the preacher. Now, obviously, there were many inventions in Solomon's day that weren't there prior to Solomon. And obviously, there's many inventions in our day, that Solomon and people in his day couldn't even have imagined. And the point is that there's no new thing that ever enables man under the sun to break out of his sense of futility. It's never new enough. Ever. So no no matter what new novelty any generation may come up with, that they may invent, be it an aeroplane. Imagine someone looking up in the sky in Solomon's day. Imagine the Wright brothers thinking about a man walking on the moon. It's beyond their comprehension. Nevertheless, vanity of vanities, all is all is vanity. How many of you are blown away by uh, you know Neil Armstrong walking on the moon? Back, what was it, nineteen sixty-nine? I remember. The, I remember the summer. I remember going outside and looking up in the moon, going, "Wow, there is a man up there." Right You trip about that now? I don't think so. Verse 11. There's no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. So here he expands on his point made back in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes. Human memory is very short, amen? It's very short. People of long ago, they're not remembered, or they're not lauded after once they're gone. You think of celebrities. Think of superstar celebrities. Michael Jackson, you know what he is? He's a dead guy. And Michael Jackson, at the height of his career... I, we have a couple of people in our congregation who are actually friends or very close. They had a close association with Frank Sinatra, the legend, right? Well, when Michael Jackson was at the height of his career, the time he wore his little white glove, he, he stood outside, they were playing the same place, and he stood outside and knocked on the dressing room door. I was told this story by one of our congregants. That he was dying to see Frank Sinatra who's a dead guy, superstars, legends, huge megastar. You know, I told my son when Frank Sinatra died in 1998, he was 10, and I was trying to disciple him and use this as an example. I said, look, I don't know if you realize that guy was a superstar, and now he just faced his creator. He's dead. And he will not be remembered or lauded after as he was when he walked this earth. And that's what Solomon says. Solomon isn't saying that human beings are utterly oblivious to the past or, or of significant people. Amen? We still talk about some people. We still talk about Napoleon. Right? Or even Nero. Evil, you know, an evil Dictator the point is a life oriented toward ensuing legacy for posterity under the sun is like pursuing the wind Sidney gray danis writes this quote people have made mountains named or people have named mountains after men but a following generation changes the names People have had their names etched into buildings, but in time the buildings will de- be demolished and the names forgotten. People write books to be remembered by posterity, but in time the books will be replaced by other books and the authors will be forgotten. Death dashes all hopes of immortality, including the immortality of being remembered forever. End quote. That's what Solomon's describing. Meaning and significance can't even be found in being remembered. It's a vain attempt. So the preacher says there's no remembrance of earlier things and also for the latter things that will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. It's the essence of what he's saying. So he's saying if you're living to leave a legacy... Here, I have news for you. They'll forget you. They'll forget it, whatever it is you did. It may be brought up in conversations or may lead to something else down the pipe, but the individual, for the most part, will be forgotten. No matter how important you are or think you are. If you're striving after that, that's like striving after the wind. Vanity vanities. All is vanity. So apart from God, our our approach to life, beloved, under the sun, if we approach life not with a proper eternal perspective of life, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go through this life either bitter and cynical. You ever met those people? Yeah. Yeah, it must be nice. or, you know, that, that's pessimism, or you'll live life in very unrealistic terms. You know, I'm just thinking positive, because if I think it, it'll happen. It's naive and very impractical. But those are basically your two choices, living under the sun, rather than under the son of God, who is the sovereign, omnipotent ruler of the S-U-N and everything that dwells around it and under it. Amen? Jesus' message is clear. If you attempt to store up treasure here and toil under the sun with that goal, apart from God, listen to what he said. Luke 12, beginning of verse 16. He told a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, be careful what you think to yourself. Amen? Because this fool thought this. What shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, the man who talked to himself, the man who spoke to himself, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. Right? It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God, the creator of the Son. So it's clear there's nothing to be gained on this earth. There's no profit. There's nothing left over when we die apart from God. And so it is, verse 21, with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. But in God, through his Son, Jesus Christ, there's great profit. This is where the prophet's at. We're going to talk about profit today. And this is profit with an F, not a pH. Profit. Gain. Great profit for those rich towards God. In Matthew 6:19, Jesus said, Look. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. John 6, 27, Jesus said, Do not labor for food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Paul restates Jesus' teaching in 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work, which is a good thing, the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labors not in vain. We'll go back to that repeatedly through this study. In the Lord our labor is not in vain. Outside of the Lord it is all vanity. So as we study Ecclesiastes, let's consider where we turn. Okay, As believers, where do we turn to solve the basic questions of life? And, And consider this. Where did you turn before you were in Christ? To, to try to answer you know, the riddle of life as Solomon is attempting to do. Question, where do you look for meaning today now that you're in Christ? Sincerely, where do we look for meaning here today when, you're find, when you find yourself looking for answers to all the dilemmas of life? You're inundated every day, all this news, all this bad news. You know, do you wring your hands and pull out your hair and say, where's the meaning in it all? Right? Where do we look? That's the question. This is the applicable question. Do we look to his word? Or are we striving and searching for answers outside of his word? That's the question for us Christians. If it's anywhere else or in anyone else, there's only one thing we must do. Repent. Amen. Is life not a continual ongoing process of repenting, right? Turning from my foolish thinking, I got caught up in this thing. My thinking's way out of bounds for a believer. So I have to repent, Lord, I confess this. I've been thinking like a fool. I'm just speaking from experience right now. I've been thinking like a fool, and we get back on the course of all of life, and it's the living word of God, right? Because you can watch the news and say, look, If you're truly sensitive, then you're going to believe this, and you're going to accept this, and you're going to accept that, because that's what the populace is accepting. So you must accept it, or you're a hater. And for people, for instance, who couldn't have thought of two men being married, today they say, hey, so long as they're happy. Is that biblical? It's unbiblical. So we have to get back to the truth. In all things, for everything outside of that truth is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Amen, beloved.